Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week we're continuing our Magician's Watch Through, looking at Season 2, Episode 2, Hotel Spa Potions. Do you want to start us off with a recap? Sure. So, Quentin, Alice, Penny, and Margot make it back to break bills. And since magic will end everywhere if Martin drinks the last of the wellspring, Dean Fogg enlists the help of Professor Sunderland to help them find a book of battle magic that was hidden by the pixie professor Bigby. Once they solve an anagram and a riddle to Bigby's location, they visit her and convince her to give them the Rhinoman Ultra spell, which only powered-up Alice can use, though Ember's gross gift is fading. Meanwhile, Penny has a steaming healing session with Sunderland to get his cursed hands under control. Alice, Quentin, Penny, and Margot are then given Keiko demons in their back to use as a one-shot weapon. In New York, Martin brings Marina to Julia so they can use her as bait to lure Reynard. At first, Marina won't agree to help, but after another powerful hedge witch is killed by Reynard and Dean Fogg won't grant her asylum, Marina finally agrees to help. Quentin visits Julia to warn her that they are about to attack the beast with a dangerous spell, but they fight because she wants them to wait until Martin has helped her kill Reynard. Back in Fillory, Elliot has to rely on his farming background to save the crops that are failing due to the depleted wellspring. As the crops grow, it's clear that Elliot and Fenn have a lot to work out in their marriage, especially sexually. The episode ends with Quentin, Alice, Penny, and Margot landing back in Castle Whitespire. Yeah, so a lot happens this episode. Yeah, as always. (laughs) So what are your magic moments, the moments that stuck out to you this episode? I just loved them trying to solve the puzzle and riddle and stuff to try to find the book of battle magic. It was just such a fun, quick way to show all of these different cool ways of using magic. Totally. With finding them out of like the library card catalog, doing whatever the equations were Mm -hmm. with Sunderland and Penny, and then the super quick and easy way to do a bunch of anagrams so yeah it was just it was fun little activity along the way yeah (laughs) i also love the moment even though it's really sad when sunderland and penny are doing the spell and his hands are going out of control she says what's happened to your hands and reaches for them and he just like pulls them back and he says what hasn't Mm. and it's just like such a sad moment of again reminding us how much bodily harm penny has had in i mean probably all of the time loops but in in this one that we've seen obviously he's had the psychological um, emotional struggles with hearing people being tortured with you know all of these things with seeing someone kill themselves in front of him but on top of that you have the physical trauma that's happened to his body over and over and over again where yeah he keeps ending up in the hospital and right now he's not in the hospital but last episode he literally had to have his hands sewn back on before he could go get them healed in this torrent and now they're attacking him and attacking other people around him and it's just like oh 
and you know and his first reaction is to like pull back from other people yeah uh in ways that they don't understand him or he doesn't want people touching him or you know different things and oh so much there yeah even his traveling is an earlier example of his body working without his consent mm-hmm. and his struggles with that had him get a tattoo and then remove that tattoo. Yeah. Both of which are painful processes. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, he has already in a season and two episodes struggled so much with his body and Mm -hmm. in ways that are unique to him and his experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Another one that's kind of sad too, but it's sad, but it's also like, amusing because it's Martin Chatwin singing and dancing but I was just thinking about this time noticing like he's doing these different things that all seem very like youthful very Mm -hmm. like childhood-ish obviously you can sing and dance at any age but the way he does it with just abandon you know and is fully enjoying it It, not even dancing particularly well (laughs) But not doing it to perform, just doing it for the fun of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then he's eating sugary cereal, mm-hmm. like, from the box. And he's eating one of those push-pop ice creams, you know. It's just kind of sad because he didn't get to have a lot of those experiences. Not only because there was a war going on when he was a kid, but also the abuse that he was suffering. Mm-hmm. And so it's like kind of nice to see him enjoying himself so much. Obviously the murder aside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I noticed this episode too, at the beginning where he magics the music on the backing mm-hmm. music, which is also so fun. Like another really fun way of using magic. Yeah. Which is also nice to see him use magic for things that aren't evil. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. And then the last one I really want to talk about is the fact that Elliot literally runs away from the manure that's being piled up and Mm -hmm. calls it our royal dung. (laughs) They have many a farm to grace with that royal dung. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very good. Yes. Just excellent. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? Yeah. I had some other fun moments. Loved how when they can't find the cottage because of the end of the year prank (laughs) penny is just so fed up he just cannot stand it done with all of them exactly he has no time for whimsy (laughs) (laughs) and i also love how margo makes a potion for him that's based off of a hangover cure that she (laughs) made for her and elliot like another really great use of the setting of college and grad school and parties and how people that age would be using magic. Yeah, I think that that's uh, just really, really cool. And it kind of highlights how prior to the beast coming through that mirror, studying magic was not what it is now. Mm -hmm. What they need now is so different than what they were interested in (laughs) using magic for prior to the beast. Totally, yeah. You know, I also loved the cover of Hotel Spa Potions. Oh, yeah, that was a great cover. The, like, 50s pinup style, uh, Mm -hmm. like, comic style, which was often used for advertisements and for the cover of romance novels and pulp novels and things like that. You know, not only, I think, just really good design, but also a great hiding place Mm -hmm. because 
Bigby knows that no one's going to pick that up and be like, well, I have to read this. <laughs> I'm checking this one out. <laughs> um, yeah, just, I think, delightful. Small details that the, the set design crew and, and the creators of the show clearly put time into and, uh, and I think make the, the show even better. And then the last moment I had was just seeing how comfortable Fog is when he's putting the Keiko demons into them <laughs> and how comfortable he is with their pain. Yeah. I think we just continue to see him as a very complicated character, a character who is not benevolent, is not kind, but who also is there to help them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just interesting seeing him particularly, you know, compared to the Beast, like you were talking about before, who is enthusiastic and who is engaged with the people around him, even though some of them he wants to use as bait, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Fog is much less enthused about anything, but also less caring about the pain of those around him. Yeah, it's also interesting to see the respect that he has by the other professors there. Mm. Because at first Sunderland's like, you're telling me this, why? Like, how is this going to affect our curriculum? Like, I'm a professor. What does Fillory have to do with me, you know? Mm -hmm. But then she's like, okay, I will help do this with the library and gets involved that way. And then the other professor who was putting the Keiko demons in, obviously Dean Fogg had to ask them, you know? Yeah. So to do things maybe outside their actual on paper role at the school, but they're, they're willing to do it. Totally. Yeah. Well, let's head into our section on setting and society. What did you bring to discuss? Well, I think a big one in this episode, and one that won't, you know, will continue, is just the idea of queer royalty. Mm. The fact that throughout history, so often people in royal families have had to keep their queerness a secret or something only behind closed doors, but then still be forced into a heterosexual relationship based on their role in the family and to produce heirs and, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, that's something, not all time. Sometimes there's great, a long time ago, Chinese emperors that had all of these male companions or maybe just one. And um, that was all known about and like, fine. Yeah. Oftentimes, even if that was socially acceptable in their context, still there is this requirement put on for an heir. In ways that's really problematic. Absolutely, because it's it's entirely patriarchal because it's an heir that has to come through the father rather than certain societies like the Iroquois who had matrilineal heirs where it had to come from the mother. And there it doesn't matter if there's multiple partners of rulers or what have you because it's the woman's family who passes on that royal status. I mean, it maybe it doesn't matter, but if she was lesbian to have an True. heir that of she course. birthed, you know, it, yeah. it's still putting this priority on bloodlines, on birthing children, True. on, you know, all of these things, these requirements that are problematic. And it's just, I mean, royalty is absurd. The idea mm-hmm. that, you know, you should be able to adopt a kid and they be the next queen, king, whatever, or, you know, let's just get rid of them altogether. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's something that I think 
it's, it's a difficult issue because it's like you see Ellie and you're like, I don't want you to have to be in this situation, you know? It's very uncomfortable for me to think about him being forced into sexual situations that he does not want to be in. Yeah. So then even though he wanted to do this orgy thing to try to do something that could help satisfy them both in a way because she wasn't comfortable with it, then he called it off. He doesn't want to put her in a situation that he's currently in, yeah. you know? Uh, and so, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's painful to watch, mm-hmm. especially as a queer person. I'm like, ah, no, get out, Elliot. But yeah, it's, it's difficult, uh, particularly with their Florian rules, because obviously queer royalty throughout history have probably had some behind closed doors things going on, but that is not possible in Fillory, according to the rules. So yeah, it's it's even more heightened, the problematic hetero-patriarchal demands. Yeah, absolutely. Random side note, I'm not into royalty or really shows about royalty. I, I've never really cared very much, but a show that I do love called Young Royals deals with this idea in very interesting and compelling ways. So if you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. It's Swedish. Uh, it's excellent. It's excellent. Make sure you have the subtitles on. But anyways, did you have a comment on this? <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's hard because of all these pressures. The fact that he's royalty or yeah, this this magical element of who he can be with now as High King, Elliot seems to have almost recloseted himself because he's not telling Fen that he's queer. Yeah, he is. I think he's dancing around it. You told me that before your life was different. Yeah. So I think he's told her. I mean, maybe. I took that to mean that he is dancing around the discussion because that we see him say that specifically mm-hmm. before I met you my life was different not before I met you I mostly or only was interested in men we haven't had seen that conversation so it it feels almost to me like he's using innuendo in a way that he doesn't feel entirely open compared to certainly the Elliot that we saw earlier in the show when he was talking about getting blowjobs from men and things like that all the time. Like, you know, I think that he's just uh, part of his isolation here where all of his friends are gone and he's in this new place in this new role is also this self-isolation, this this way of kind of compartmentalizing his identity, which, yeah, is, is hard to watch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean... I wouldn't necessarily use the phrase recloseted himself because, like, society closets people mm. rather than them doing it to themselves. I think, I don't know. Yeah, it's a very interesting situation because it seems like he, well, there was a requirement for consummation. Mm-hmm before the whole deal went through and they gave the knife that could kill the beast and all of that. And so he's engaged in this way once. Mm -hmm. And now his now wife wants to engage in this more. And I think he is having a very difficult time navigating that, being queer. And my guess would be that he has told you that, but because he's also maybe in some points been with women Mm -hmm. uh obviously margo was there in that threesome situation um who knows prior to him 
coming out, you know, maybe mm. he had a girlfriend in adolescence. It's not knows? like his orgy was all men. Yeah, yeah. Now he's obviously already been with Ben, mm-hmm. you know, and so I don't know if he is like, if he doesn't want to like disappoint her, mm. uh, if he doesn't want her to feel bad about herself or unhappy in the marriage or whatnot. So maybe he's more willing to take that unhappiness on himself than try to have her in a situation she doesn't want to be in, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's a complicated situation and Absolutely. Uh, we'll see more but yeah i do wish i see mo- had seen more of their other conversations regarding that matter mm. yeah some other small things that i think go into the world building of the magicians that marina has a pact with another hedge witch yes uh that they are gonna stay on their own coast and not get in each other's business and then they doesn't have to be any problem between them it's just yeah an an interesting idea of how conflicts can happen particularly with the most powerful to the point where they've made agreements also we're introduced to some magical beings pixies Mm. who love puzzles and riddles and they said especially ones that make humans look foolish Which is fun Mm -hmm. because it's not only telling us something about the pixies, but it's telling us something about the interactions between pixies and humans. And the pixies are just like, humans are kind of inferior to us Mm -hmm. in not only wit, but lifespan and memory and, you know, all of these different things. And just so easy (laughs) to mess with. (laughs) (laughs) And then also there's these Keiko demons, Mm. which... I feel uncomfortable with the fact that they're taken from their home, stuffed into a human to act as a one-shot weapon for them. Don't love that. (laughs) Yeah. And it's interesting that they're called demons because Mm -hmm. in our society, demons often has a very religious connotation. Mm -hmm. And so where that name comes from, whether they were called that originally because people thought of them as having a religious element to them and they were mistaken about that or whether there are kind of larger cosmological ideas there. Yeah, just another interesting detail. Totally. But yeah, something that I think definitely corresponds to our world with people thinking of living creatures that aren't humans as at their disposal to Mm. do whatever they want with for their own benefit. I mean, some people treat humans that way too, but (laughs) it's, it's socially acceptable for some reason for us to treat other living creatures that way. Even if the living creatures like a pig is smarter than a toddler, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but what about you? Yeah. I also had some interesting kind of magical questions really that were raised in this episode. For one, I'm wondering how they got to the conclusion that if magic dies in Fillory, it dies everywhere. Fog kind of immediately understood that, and they seem to kind of have that as the core of their quest, and it brings into consideration that Fog didn't know that Fillory's real, but he knew that other worlds are real, perhaps, or at least he has enough of a theoretical understanding of the universe that he knows that things are inextricably connected and that if magic is going to exist 
it has to exist kind of in a shared way among universes. What do you mean Fogg didn't know that Filler was real? You mean prior to, prior to that conversation Chatwin coming in? Because he's known Filler is real for 50 years I suppose or plus. That's you know, true, yeah. For all these time loops. But yeah, prior to that, like, is it something that's in their curriculum, this idea that there has to be, like, a central source of magic that they can tap into or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, yeah, they all get on board with that idea real quick mm-hmm. and say, wait, where did, where did this come from? <laughs> it's interesting, right? Yeah, and clearly it's what's needed to move the plot forward. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, it, it just, for me, having watched it and read the books... And so remembering some of the more grounding of those conversations, this conversation seems super quick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We're not going to go down this road. <laughs> Just get on board or you're left behind. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, we also see Martin travel in this episode. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder whether he was innately born a traveler or whether through his experiments and things like that he became a traveler mm-hmm. and you know that raises questions about what it means to be a traveler and where that power can come from that i don't think the show is going to explore but mm-hmm. are, are interesting elements of the world yeah my assumption would be that he was not a traveler because he wanted to get into fillery when it kept closing to him mm-hmm. so you would think with that he would have accidentally traveled there as he was trying to figure out a way to get there if he had naturally been born that way but you know we don't know but yeah when he's literally drinking from the wellspring where magic was born or whatnot um it probably lets him do a lot of things yeah yeah i also find fog's kind of offhand comment about the tattoos that they're getting being the first letter of their names uh and he he says I find this really interesting. He says, their names will become an important part of them. Even the shape of their letters connect with their will and their unique abilities. The idea of like word magic uh, and name magic is fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, lots of cultures have had long histories of believing that names have magical power. Rumpelstiltskin being an example of, like, one of the the common fairy tales about Mm -hmm. that. But it also reminded me a bit of my friend who has synesthesia and Mm. how they would often relate people with colors based off of the first letter of their names. Mm -hmm. And so she kind of always had this just kind of innate way of viewing words and letters as connected to colors and Mm. connected to something beyond just the word itself. And so, yeah, having a magical world, I think it makes sense that there would be a power there as well. Yeah, it's fascinating, an idea of tattooing a spell onto yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then my final point was just how uncomfortable I am with the idea that Bigby used this ultra spell at the Battle of Gettysburg <laughs> and Rupert used at the Battle of the Bulge yeah. and it decided these historical moments. Um, I think I know, right? 15 years ago, I would have loved that kind of thing. I, I, well, it's just like a funny comment. Yeah. But then, yeah, once you study history like you have, it's like, ah. Well, I spend so much of my life trying to teach students not to think ahistorically, not to think in ways that, you know, look at history in these really myopic, incorrect ways. And the idea that a single individual with a single spell could have changed these things in secret rather than these really important 
bottom up processes and, and events mm-hmm. that occurred just yeah it like grinds my gears or it's like no that's the opposite of what I'm trying to get my students to do <laughs> so <laughs> as a viewer I personally have some issues with <laughs> coming to grips with those two things totally. <laughs> <laughs> but let's head into our next section on themes and schemes what'd you bring yeah, I think uh, I don't actually have very much to say on this, but I think th- this quote by Martin is really interesting. He said, all I do is accept what you fight. And I'm just kind of going to be taking you note know, as we continue with the series, if that quote rings true in certain circumstances or certain characters, this idea of someone accepting something that the, another person is fighting. Mm. Um I mean, for Martin, it's that life is pointless in the afterlife even more so. But I could imagine that it could apply differently for for very many things. Yeah, we we can continue to see. I mean, maybe that could even be like Penny, right? Mm -hmm. For someone like Victoria, a traveler, she accepts it. She embraces it. She loves it. It was traveling everywhere. And for him, it was a harder process to come to accepting that instead of fighting it and literally tattooing something that would ground him and, and, and whatnot. So, yeah, just something I'll be kind of keeping my eye out for. That's really interesting because I had a similar quote uh, mm. that I, I was looking at similarly, which is when Alice tells Quentin, not everything that hurts is bad, mm-hmm. where she's kind of trying to help him accept that there are some painful elements of society and their lives and that accepting those things can sometimes be more important than feeling like you have to fight them or have to fix them or or more useful for you. Uh, And yeah, I wanted to also think about if that becomes a theme or a quote that kind of the the series comes back to as well. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Another thing that I was thinking about and, and wondering how it could maybe impact the series moving forward is... An idea that comes from the Florians starving because they grew crops with magic. Mm -hmm. And so because they grew crops with magic and relied on magic, now they don't know what to do with these plants now that magic is failing. And thinking about the reliance on magic and what that means for characters who magic is a huge part of their life mm-hmm. in what ways are they maybe relying on it too much or relying on it in healthy ways or what ways does that reliance make them more vulnerable mm-hmm. so yeah definitely we'll be thinking about that too mm, that's interesting and then the last thing i was thinking about is just the argument that julia and quentin have yeah julia says reynard is killing people everywhere you think that's less important And he comes back with, no, what you want is revenge. And she's like, you don't. And, you know, I think that there's a part of Julia that doesn't want that. But I don't think it's just that. Mm -hmm. Because she went and saw these other people that Reynard killed. And talked to a little kid who was there and witnessed it. Mm -hmm. Or came upon it after it happened. Like this very traumatizing thing. And so I don't think that it's just vengeance sure does she want to kill him for what he did to her and all of her close friends sure i think she does but yeah i think she actually does really care about people and i think that 
the show is again bringing attention to the priorities of break bills and the elite institution mm -hmm. uh, at the sacrifice of the hedge communities. Yeah. She cares about them, and Quentin just doesn't. It's, mm -hmm. it's, I mean, if there wasn't a beast to fight, would he help? Maybe. But we've already seen him be dismissive of hedges and their magic. And the way they do things, yeah, just have this really elitist, terrible view of them. We've talked a lot about how Breakfalls is elitist and, you know, is a gatekeeper for knowledge and doesn't want people to have it. We see that, too, when Marina's trying to seek asylum, she, at break bills, she's denied it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there is this idea that the hedges who are dying are less important than break bill students that will die, that I think Julia's pushing back on, as she should. Yeah, absolutely. Another reason why Julia's story is so crucial, because mm -hmm. it is humanizing and being compassionate to this large swath of society outside of that elitist perspective. Yeah, I think that it, it's very interesting to see them both give each other warnings, but also be at cross purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think it begs the question of why are they doing what they're doing anymore? If Marin could go back to the Wellspring, drink the last of it, and magic would just end, mm -hmm. well, if magic ends, then he can't magically kill them, mm -hmm. you know? I don't know if the magic ending would mean that all magical creatures would end, because then that would be a different conversation. But, but they aren't even having those conversations. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's not a concern for them. And so... It's even more important to get rid of Reynard while they still have magic mm -hmm. because it's not like the god is going to lose their abilities. And so if there's a chance that magic is gone so you could never get rid of Reynard, that should be the priority because once magic is gone, then Martin's not going to have his powers either once they run out, you know? Yeah. So... Yeah, the question is, are they, at this point, just trying to save their own lives? Exactly. Um, and their interactions in the world, relying on magic and, and wanting magic. Yeah, and Quentin projects that onto Julia, because mm -hmm. he, you know, is talking about, like, I know you're hurting right now. And, like, true, there's an element of that with Julia, but her mission is also looking at a much wider net of society, mm -hmm. whereas Quentin's mission is self-focus. It is protecting himself from the beast in the way it always has been. Or maybe trying to protect Fillory because this is something he loves. True, yeah. It's like, no, dude, you're missing the point mm -hmm. <laughs> of this raping, rampaging god that's going around. And, you know, maybe that's too focused on Earth, but... What would stop him from going other places and doing mm -hmm. that to other planets, you know? Yeah, exactly. And and maybe maybe the gods of their planets would stop that. I don't know. But there's a lot of questions that people should be asking before they come to the conclusion. Exactly. But what about you? What are your themes and schemes? Yeah, I mean, that, that those were most of my notes as well. Uh, so uh, <laughs> we, we, it's all right. We did them together. <laughs> So then let's uh, let's just move on, since you stole all of mine, uh, to our <laughs> next section, From Another Point of View. So whose perspective did you want to discuss this week? So I was really 
feeling for Marina in this mm. episode. Thinking about the fear and terror that she was feeling. Because when she first comes into the episode, Martin brings her tied up in a chair with a mask over her face. And you can just see her breathing really fast. Mm-hmm. And this is Marina. <laughs> this is the person that most hedge witches are scared of, right? Yeah. And she is scared of what's happening. Probably any of the magic she did against this person didn't work, right? Mm-hmm. And he just tied her up and, and brought her here against her will. Then she's asked to serve as bait, which would be a really frustrating thing to be asked. Yeah. <laughs> so you want me to be the one that's put in danger. I'm like, okay, fair. There's a reason why they can't serve as bait, and so she's one of the hedge witches that maybe could. I mean, where's Pete? Why don't we have Pete serve as bait? But, you know, it, it has to be someone who's magically gifted enough to do the incantation, right? Mm-hmm. I think Renard also seems to have some kind of misogynistic bent, too, where he's mostly yeah. targeting women, but yeah. True. And she says that she wants to kick Julia's ass and kill Martin, mm-hmm. which is just interesting because I feel like Marina from earlier on in season one would have also wanted to kill Julia for this, yeah. but I think that... We know that she likes Julia, and mm-hmm. she would prefer to not harm her in any way if it can be helped uh, from her point of view. <laughs> and yeah. then also, you know, she was the one who helped after the rape and the murders of her, of Julia's friends. And mm-hmm. so I think she probably has a bit of compassion there, too, being like, okay, this is why she's doing this and... Yet, she says, I'm not going to be involved. And she leaves. But I think it's really interesting that then she calls probably the most powerful hedge witch that she knows on the West Coast and is trying to work with her to help figure out a way to deal with Reynard. Mm -hmm. And so even though she said no to being bait, she still is taking the situation seriously and willing to even work with someone that she's probably had tensions and problems with in the past because that person's powerful. Yeah, some really great narrative agency for her there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then when she gets there, I think, again, that terror sets in because Reynard so easily killed this most powerful hedge witch that she knows. Yeah. So that leads her to do something that... She would not do, I think, under any other circumstances, mm-hmm. which is ask for asylum from the person who kicked her out of break bills. Yeah. And so I was just thinking about she must be so afraid. And you see that in that scene in Fogg's office. First of all, it's great that she breaches break bills yeah. <laughs> wards because she can do that. And he gives her a drink and she just downs it and then you know she gets a second and you can see that she's scared and she's pleading Mm -hmm. which again we've never seen marina do marina is always in control she is 
a badass, yeah. you know, and to see her so vulnerable and in that vulnerability, I think feeling betrayed and cast aside and probably the anger that she feels from that because not only did Fog kick her out of school and take her memories away and, and therefore take her education away, which anybody should be mad about. Mm -hmm. And also, more than that, he won't even allow her to stay and have asylum on school grounds, which means that he doesn't care if she lives or dies. Yeah. He lets her keep her memories in the hopes that it'll keep her alive, but he won't allow her to stay. He even says that he doesn't want her to infect the students, yeah. right? Those words are just so demeaning and so hurtful. And mm -hmm. like maybe it was a situation she got cooked out because of things that she was encouraging other students to do. Not that she can't be problematic. She can, yeah. right? And she can be violent and she can do this spell that would keep Quentin forever in this terrible dream, nightmare state, you know? And so I understand why he would not allow her to be at the school mm -hmm. in the past. But in this situation where you know that she is probably going to get killed, that there's a god out there literally hunting her people, and to just say no. Because if you stay, you're going to infect the people around you because you're like a disease. And so, yeah, I was just really thinking about how that must feel to hear at any time, but in this state of vulnerability and fear. Him even taking away a previous compliment he had paid her mm -hmm. that she was the best student he had ever taught because he says that he confused talent with character and you know he, he's obviously saying you're so talented because clearly she is probably outside of any of the like master magicians that we see she's probably the the most powerful yeah and so yeah i was just thinking about like the moment between being denied asylum she doesn't even finish the second drink she just like gets out of there the time between then and when she knocks on julia's door and says oh, i changed my mind i'll help she you know she walks in with her classic power mm -hmm. her kind of flippant attitude towards everything in life but between that time i'm just thinking that she must feel hopeless she must feel like, there is literally nothing else she can do but be bait. Yeah. Because any person around her that is more powerful than her can't or won't help her. Yeah. Except for the beast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just was really feeling for her because it's such a horrible situation. And I think she's treated with without human decency. Absolutely. Like, how do you send someone away that you know may die? Yeah, it's, uh, you, you know, me, historian mind, like, it brings to mind the many, many, many times that public health has been weaponized against minorities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the AIDS crisis is obviously a really big example of that, but in Chinatowns in the late 1800s, we often had 
the awful conditions of their homes, which were based off of their economic oppression, based off of them as if they were culturally vectors of disease. Here in LA, in the 1920s, there was an outbreak of bubonic plague that came through the port of San Pedro, but mostly impacted, again, people who had little access to hygienic living situations and things like that. And so it spread within a Mexican-American community. And so three different Mexican-American communities and Mexican communities were just burnt to the ground. Yeah, it's, you know, how people are seen as disease carriers because they are lesser than, because they are different. And Yeah, only some people are thought of to deserve safety. Exactly. And Marina... You know, obviously she does have some character problems, uh, Mm -hmm. but I think that if she was not a hedge, that conversation would have gone so much differently. And so there are still these systems of oppression at play here. Yeah, I mean, and, and as a teacher yourself, several years later, one of your previous students who was really excellent, but also problematic, you know, comes to you and is like, this person is trying to kill me. (laughs) You know, it's just like, oh, you go deal with that. Hopefully what I taught you will help you. You know, it's just like, and if it was, I can't have you here because if he seeks you out, it's putting all of these other students in danger. But that's not what he said. Yeah. You know, if that was at all a part of his reasoning, he didn't mention it. Exactly. Which... Yeah, makes it seem like I literally don't care if you die, which is a terrible thing for one of your previous professors to feel. Absolutely. Or to to tell you. And again, it highlights Julia's quote at the beginning of the series that Break Bills wants people who just go along with things. They don't want people who think for themselves, who question things. Uh, Marina's the worst example of that, perhaps, (laughs) but, you know, the idea that her perspective, her different ideas of morality are an infection that could spread is, uh, I think, goes along with Julia's critique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what about you? Whose point of view were you thinking about? I wanted to talk about Fen. Let's do it. Because, you know, we talked about last week how Fen is reintroduced with a new actor, and this episode shows a good reason why they really needed a strong Fen, because those times when Elliot is away from the group and he's back in Fillory, he needs someone who he can talk with and grow with and someone who who will kind of be there. And I think Fen does a really interesting job here of a character who helps push Elliot's character building and narrative arc forward. Mm -hmm. But then when you think about what's going on with her, you also see so much interesting material as well that the actor brings and the writing brings. Totally. She's not only there to push his character forward, she's still able to be a character in and of herself. Absolutely. And I think they do a deft job of having her in this really interesting position of someone who is in her own new status as the wife of the High King, someone who she's only barely meeting. Someone who clearly has patriarchal messages that have been instilled in her when she mentioned mm-hmm. at the beginning that she wants to be obedient and she wants to serve Elliot and Fillory. To which Elliot says, no one wants to be obedient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and I think that's the thing is that Elliot being Elliot, he says a few things like that. He says, I don't want to be a leader of a cult. He says, I want people to speak their mind, especially you to Fen. And so she's grappling with what she's been socialized in, what Elliot is now telling her, these new positions, and then also what Elliot's actions are, which don't always go along with his words. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to think about maybe her even speaking up to then stop herself and say, I want to be obedient. That's a risk that she's taking because she sees the people of her world starving. And that, I think, is, is really, really insightful, too, because she is highlighting the importance of the problems that Fillory is facing mm-hmm. when Elliot is worried about champagne. Yeah. That <laughs> the beginning of the episode has them trying this champagne out and him being upset that it didn't work. And she's like, forget growing these grapes. What about the food that we need to survive? I I can only imagine what her perspective is when Elliot talks about how he has this secret shame and it's just that he grew up on a farm. (laughs) Because to her, how could that be shameful? Particularly after he does show that that is what Fillory needed. It needed that kind of knowledge that Fillory didn't have. And not that she grew up on a farm, but she grew up in, you know... A rural society. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, if you have shame about this, what does that mean about what you think about us and me? Exactly. And so, yeah, she's able to give the reaction of, wait, you use shit on crops? What? (laughs) What are you using this for? For the crops. (laughs) (laughs) But at the end of the episode, she's also the person who is most excited that it's working. Mm -hmm. She's the one who comes and celebrates that and shows him the growing plant. And she clearly cares so much about this issue, about the fact that Fillory is starving, that Mm -hmm. she sees this as miraculous, as something that is going to change her world, her society Mm. in really impactful ways. And yeah, it just, it's, it's great seeing her play off Elliot and react to Elliot as he's coming into his kingliness in a literally shitty way. Um, (laughs) But their interpersonal relationship, I think, also compellingly complicates this because he mentions how, you know, he might want certain things for his stress relief. And she says, well, I will do anything to help you. And then he suggests an orgy. He plans one. Yes, yes. And she has a few different issues with that, which makes sense. She's someone who again, was probably given the idea that her relationship with the king would be traditional marriage of, Mm -hmm. you know, heteropatriarchal and would involve outside people and would be about the two of them. And she's still very new into this marriage herself. And likely with that kind of heteropatriarchal society, she was a virgin beforehand. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so she hadn't been with anyone else. So she's exploring this for the first time. And so, you know, one of her issues is that she asks whether she's not enough for him. And that, I think, is another line that makes me think that Elliot hasn't been completely honest with her, that he prefers male bodies. Or she doesn't really understand it because she's straight. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, I can just imagine how how hard that is when you are new into this relationship that is going to be your relationship. I mean, yeah. 
what does this podcast become? <laughs> this is get this that is explicit tag all of a sudden. Now we're <laughs> we shouldn't have gone to grad school magic. <laughs> but yeah, you know, feeling like you are not enough for the person who you want to serve, or you're told that you should serve, that you should mm-hmm. be obedient to, I think is is really difficult. But I also so admire how Fen challenges him and that because he's the king, she doesn't use the word consent, but essentially consent is always going to be tricky with the people around him. Mm -hmm. And that sure, no one says that they're not okay with this, but she mentions, but you're their king. Of course, they're not going to say that. Like, it's nice that he was like, all of these people are already doing each other. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Elliot's doing it in in ways that are not awful. Yeah, but. And this is in of itself a middle ground. He's not inviting them to his bed. He's making it sound like they're just going to be watching and you know doing or their he, thing alongside he's it. He's going to be watching That's rather. True. Yeah, but <laughs> it still brings in power dynamics. Exactly. Yeah. And she highlights that because just like them, she has to serve. She has to be obedient, and so she can't say no either. Mm-hmm. So she says yes, but it's clear that she's still uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And so Elliot, being Elliot he cancels it and he doesn't want her to feel that way. And so, yeah, I can, I can just imagine her when she has been told by Elliot to speak up, to not just be a a yes person and not to just follow him and serve him, but to speak up. But then she's in the situation where she speaks up, but she can't say no. Mm -hmm. It's just a really strong moment. And it's also shows her, insight. Mm -hmm. You know, she's not traditionally trained. She was raised in this heteropatriarchal (laughs) culture that told her she had to be obedient. And yet she's also able to identify these issues of consent in ways that Elliot isn't naturally. So yeah, I just, I find Fenn's perspective here illuminating and fascinating. Yeah, I think a, a great thing that Fenn brings too is the fact that yes, she grew up as the daughter of a blacksmith who didn't have a lot of wealth or influence or different things. She wasn't a part of the Pickwick family that were kind of the stewards in between Martin being High King and Rupert and, you know. All those failed other children of Earth yeah. that we hear mentioned, but yeah. don't. <laughs> we see the skeletons the of. Skeleton yeah. of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, And so she is able to bring what other people of a lot of privilege can't, which Mm -hmm. is insight from and care about the community that is not privileged and that is suffering under the situations that Fillory finds itself in now. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's uh, really important to have her there and to, yeah, think about what she's thinking about and what's motivating her to do and say what she's doing. Yeah. Because, yeah, it must be difficult for her. Exactly. I think the fact that we both chose side characters, you mm-hmm. know, guest starring characters <laughs> in our From Another POV is another example of how great this show is at writing interesting characters. That That's not just the main cast, but mm-hmm. it is really the majority of the characters we see on screen. Absolutely. All right, well, let's revisit the title of this episode, Hotel Spa Potions. Yeah, I I think it's a good title. I think it's a great way to 
remind the audience what's in this episode if they've already seen it before. Mm-hmm. I do wish that the title of it had kind of come about in a different way because Quentin was like, oh, and this one's my favorite because it's absurd. Well, all of them were absurd. And hotel spa potions doesn't actually sound absurd Yeah, no, that's something that would absolutely exist. Yeah. And so, like, I understand why Bigby would have that as a book because it's something that could sound like an actual book in there rather than, like... One of them was something about opine path feces, or I don't know, some something that had to do with poo, and someone might open that book yeah. because they're like, what is this? You know, like, if it sounds too ridiculous, it would be like, well, gotta look in this thing, you know, but hotel spa potions, who cares? You know, move on. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought the line from him was weird <laughs> because it wasn't the most absurd on the list. But that being said, I think it makes sense for the the, the book title and the, the title of this episode. Agreed. Yeah. And again, it brings in that kind of whimsical nature that the show can have and, and that these pixie puzzles had. And I don't, I don't think there's an actual connection. But for me, my mind kind of creates a, a, a small connection between hotel spa potions and like the agriculture that Elliot is doing. Hmm. Um, like... I don't know why, but, uh, <laughs> you know, there's him wanting to have champagne. There's like, I don't know, something there um, in my well, mind, at least. What would happen in an everyday thing when magic was involved? Yeah. Well, there would be potions at a hotel spa. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'll help you get to your point. Thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs> or make it for you if you're not sure what it is. There's a reason why I'm not doing this podcast on my own. <laughs> All right, well, that wraps up this week's discussion. So what's happening next time on The Magicians? So we're going to be watching Season 2, Episode 3, Divine Elimination, where we basically get Season 1's finale in Episode 3 of this season. (laughs) Why not? Time is an illusion. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we hope that you'll join us on Patreon. And hey, tell a friend. Yeah, and after episode three, we are meeting up on August 5th with our patrons to discuss. <laughs> you know, as we mentioned, <laughs> the conclusion of some arcs. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be great fun. We'd love for you to join us if you want to become a patron and join our little community, too. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.